Welcome back. So our first question, do you recommend the abstinence of coffee? One year after quitting my morning cup, I seem to actually have more stress and fatigue. So this is a great, this is a very interesting question. And my mind has already gone about a hundred different ways thinking about this individual. I will tell you what the data shows. Uh, We're going to talk black caffeinated coffee. Uh, once you start putting artificial sweeteners and creamers, and then we're, we're talking other substances other than coffee. So we're going to uh, leave that question out. The data shows that people who drink moderate, um, moderate, no more than moderate amounts of coffee on a daily basis that, are, that is black caffeinated have lower all-cause mortality risks. They have lower diabetes, lower cancer risk, lower Alzheimer's dementia risk. In fact, the data shows that the caffeine with some of the antioxidants uh, in, the, um, in the coffee removes amyloid proteins out of the brain and, uh, and uh, yeah, in, improves neurocognition, um, et cetera. Um, uh, yeah, yes, go ahead. Yeah, Tim, as a cardiologist who reviewed that literature, I would agree with that. Okay, thanks. As long as it's black. Yeah, black. That's right. Uh, and then... Um, so, thank you. Um, if you start adding sweeteners to it, um, then it's pretty artificial sweeteners. The one artificial sweetener a day increases your risk of Alzheimer's dementia. So, you know, there's, there's no benefit there. But the black coffee reduces all cause mortality in, in, uh, and enhances uh, cognition. Now, what I heard in, in this, there are some individuals, it's also a mild improver of um, dopamine and norepinephrine and prefrontal cortex. So many people who have untreated ADHD end up self-treating with coffee and actually get a physiological improvement, which improves prefrontal cortex function while the coffee's on board. And, it, um, it, and the normal process of... of prefrontal cortex, even if you're not focusing and problem solving or anything, just normal activity sends a calming signal down to your amygdala so you actually feel less stressed and more relaxed. And so if you have untreated ADHD and you're drinking coffee, you can actually experience a sense of relaxation and calmness rather than jitteriness from the coffee. So that's potentially one of the things that could be going on here as well. Now, the other way I I deal with the coffee question is uh, you should approach it as a medicinal, medicinal, as a medicine, meaning, meaning that um, there are some people that should not use this. There are certain physiological requirements to life and health. The four big ones, or actually we'll say five, the five big ones are air, got to breathe to be healthy, water, food, sleep, and exercise. Those are the five big ones. Sleep is a physiological requirement. So many good things, I won't go into all the sleep physiology and what's required, but normal sleep is healthy. Some people, and because of our genetic variabilities, some people can drink a cup or two or three of coffee and not have sleep impairments. Other people drink a cup of coffee, they can't sleep. Sleep is more important than a cup of coffee. So if you drink coffee and you can't sleep well at night, then you need to give up the caffeinated coffee, okay? If you can, okay, good, no problem. So first thing, you have to don't use it if it interferes with normal and healthy sleep. You don't want to drink coffee during the day and take over-the-counter or other sleep aids at night to sleep. Those over-the-counter sleep aids interfere with normal sleep architecture and can cause cognitive memory problems, okay? So you don't want to do that. Next, um, seizures. Uh, Caffeine. Caffeine can reduce seizure threshold, meaning it can make it easier for people to have a seizure. So if a person has a brittle and poorly controlled seizure disorder, then adding coffee or any caffeine substance in could make their seizure control worse. And so that would be an order. And then certain types of very severe vascular disease, like Renaud's disease and other types of diseases, if you have really, really bad, then it's also a vasoconstrictor. And so you wouldn't want to use... there, there are some settings where you wouldn't want to use it, but overall, there are plenty of places it could be beneficial. 
So that's how I'd approach that. Oh, and by the way, caffeine and any other source other than green tea. Green tea also is beneficial neurocognitively and, um, and physiologically and enhances cognition in all groups. Green tea does. But any other caffeine source has not shown to be beneficial. In fact, can cause a lot of problems. So it's not simply caffeine. You can't take caffeine pills or drink sodas with caffeine. Those are all harmful. Is grief about self? The love... One, the loved one that died is just asleep. So when we grieve, are we thinking about ourselves? What are your thoughts on how we should react when someone dies, goes to sleep? No, grief is not about self. Grief is the normal response to injury or woundedness. If you uh, smash your thumb with a hammer and you cry in pain, you're not being selfish. Okay, if you've lost someone close to you, you have a real emotional loss, and the normal response is heartache and grief. And working through that is healing the a loss uh, of of that. And it, and people can gr- grieve people; they can also grieve other losses that are important to them. I've had many patients come see me after a physiological loss, an amputation, and they are grieving the loss of their leg or their arm. Or I've had people who become what are called cardiac cripples. They can't do their activity anymore, uh, and, they're not, and, they, and they feel less of the person they used to be, and they're grieving the life they used to be able to have they can't have anymore. And so, no, uh, grief is the normal response um, to loss. And remember when Jesus went to Lazarus' funeral? Shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. He wasn't being selfish when he wept at that funeral, so no. Are all talents from God, like Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, and many other great musical artists that died from overdoses and led lives of self-indulgence, can Satan give gifts and talents? So first thing to differentiate is the difference between gifts and talents. When most people use the word talents, they're thinking of natural abilities that we inherit through the genome and from our parents and genetic, uh, various genetic constellation of things. So Mozart was born talented in music. And that's what we think of when we think of talents. But talents, or Michael Jordan was born talented athletically. But talents still have to be developed. If Michael Jordan would have never picked up a basketball in his life and never practiced the thousands and thousands of hours that he practiced, even though he has baseline talent more than most, probably everyone in this room, okay, he would have never been what he achieved. He still had to apply himself. And that's the parable of the 10 talents. We, we, we get talents and we can inherit those talents, but those talents still require application and development. Gifts, on the other hand, like spiritual gifts, gift of tongues, for instance, speaking multiple languages, languages. Uh, God can bestow certain gifts directly upon people uh, for the purposes of the gospel commission, gift of prophecy, and so forth. Those are not talents. Those are things that the Holy Spirit endows people with certain abilities for certain, certain times, for certain achievements. Can Satan give people abilities or um, Within the limits uh, he is allowed to do, these, he, there is evidence uh, that certain demonic states, people can have certain uh, abilities they didn't have before. Um, So that's possible. Uh, But I don't see those as talents. Eight years ago, after attending one of my Sabbath school classes, a member approached me and asked if I listened to your lessons. That afternoon, I watched several of your videos, and all I can say is every fiber of my heart said amen. Well, thank you. I have one question or suggestion. I may have missed it, 
but I don't think I've ever heard you give a direct invitation or call to surrender or accept the true Jesus into your heart. Is there a reason you don't? I see so many opportunities for you to do that, especially when you reveal, clarify the true nature of, of, of who our God is. It seems that really that it really gives that opportunity. So yeah, there is a reason, and that is because I primarily see myself um, not as evangelizing the unconverted, but as helping those who've already accepted Jesus grow in their journey and faith with Christ. And so mine, I see mine more as, as a developmental mentoring than a calling out of a, um, a godless existence. And so that's primarily why I don't do that. Can you please explain Jesus as high priest through the design law lens? So yes, uh, as we explained in class, I'm not going to go over it again. Jesus, as the second Adam, achieved what was necessary for salvation while he was here on earth. He died. He rested in the tomb. He rose again. He ascended into heaven, took on his high priestly role. And what is that high priestly role? He stands at the command center of God's kingdom, directing all of the agencies that the divine Godhead has at their disposal for the application of his achievements into our hearts and minds. He's directing his angels, the spirit. Remember the spirit? He says the spirit comes. He will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. Well, who's he listening to? He's Jesus' representative. He is directing the Holy Spirit in the Spirit's actions to the healing of all hearts and minds. That's what he's doing. He's applying through his direction what he's achieved. What? If they're all three as one, mm-hmm. don't they all have equal abilities and everything? Why does he have to direct the Holy Spirit what to do? So Jesus was, lo- for God so loved the world that he loaned his only begotten son for 33 years to pretend he's a human? Or did God give him to us? For how long did God give Jesus to be a human? So he has, human, he has some human liabilities now. One of those being he gave up for eternity omnipresence. Could the Holy Spirit have come instead of if they're all the same, equal? So it depends on your understanding of the problem. As far as abilities go, as far as character, Ellen White says, if the Father would have come instead of the Son, the history we have uh, in the life of Christ would not have changed. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one in character, method, motive, and so forth. And prior to the incarnation, uh, in abilities. But Jesus gave up some of his divine abilities permanently, like omnipresence. He will always be human. So the Holy Spirit now goes everywhere as Jesus' representative. It was a choice that the divine God had made. But why Jesus instead of the other two? Because in the rebellion in heaven, did Lucifer allege quality, equality with the Father? No, he, no. he alleged equality with the Son. And thus the Son is the one who took on the responsibility of demonstrating that the lies were, were uh, that, that what Satan said were lies, that, that were not equal. And that's why all things were made by Jesus. And without him, nothing was made that has been made because he is a creator and Lucifer is not a creator. And so all of it connects. Okay. Does it upset God if we want to wear bikinis and leggings? Do what? Does it upset God if we want to wear bikinis and leggings? (laughs) No, this is a great question. No, you're laughing. This is a great question. It it reveals, it, 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 it requires you to consider so many levels. 
It's not a problem as long as you're covered with a robe of righteousness so the Father can't see what's below. (laughs) A little (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. No, um... Seriously. One of our members asked a clarifying question. Is it a man that asked that question or a woman? <laughs> a woman. Okay. It was a woman. I would be less upset. Okay. <laughs> so the question, do you think what law lends? Are we looking for rules? Something to be prescribed upon a population, do or don't do, like jewelry? Are you thinking context? Are you thinking let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind? Are we thinking you have a pool? in your backyard, and it's a private oasis for your family. Do you even wear a bikini, or might you and your husband or you and your wife skinny dip? I mean, does the context in place matter? That's not stated here. It says if we want to wear a bikini, but where? What's the issue? What's the Christian principle? It's about modesty and not presenting yourself out there as a sexual object to entice and allure people other than your spouse. That's the issue. Now, whether the bikini or non-bikini, where you wear it, who you're wearing it for, it's a, it really, it's about what's going on in the heart, isn't it? That's the issue. Okay. How do I talk to and help protect my elderly father? Capable and independent, he shops well at a store, but the internet is a different story. Repeated scam purchases and unintended subscriptions don't add up to lessons learned or even recognizing that there's a problem. Indeed, he thinks he's smarter than most. What's the first question that has to be answered here? Is he mentally capable? Correct. The first question that you, the, the writer of this question, has to assess in your judgment about your father is... Do you believe he's still cognitively intact and mentally capable? Recognize people without any cognitive impairments of all ages get scammed all the time. Being scammed is not an evidence of cognitive impairment. And people have the right to be scammed. (laughs) And people have the right not to learn from their bad choices. You had some things in here that are a little contradictory. You said in the, how do I protect him? But you, first words after how do I protect him are capable and independent. Well, if he's capable and independent, that would suggest he's not impaired. But then you go on to describe that he doesn't learn and he denies that he's ever had a problem with his decision making, which would suggest he's not as capable and he's got a, a, a learning problem going on where he may have some loss of ability. So first question you have to answer is, is he have, does he have loss of cognitive capacity? If that's the case, then the way you do it is you actually rest control and deny access to the sources of where his vulnerability. Um, as people cognitive decline with age, it's not They can do everything today, and tomorrow they can do nothing. It is a graduated loss of privilege and autonomy. They, for instance, at some point may not be able to drive, but they can still um, make their meals at home. And they can still have input. If they have starting to have financial issues, they can still have input with supervision, on where they want their charitable donations to go, et cetera, et cetera. It's a graduated curve, and, it decl- and once the decline starts, it typically progresses. 
and it's uh, the rules for today, where, where that line is drawn today, will be different tomorrow. And it's a constant reassessing. So, I, so the way to do it is you have to first establish in your mind what are his objective abilities. Is he simply someone who has a certain level of arrogance and foolishness and he won't learn and there's no cognitive capacity? If that's the case, you don't protect him. Let him reap what he sows. It's the only way he'll learn. But if he does have cognitive loss, then you have to step in and, and rest control and protect him from the scammers out there. A good day. How do you explain Leviticus 23.3? Um, and this, I'm sure, is related to what I said a few weeks ago about Sabbath. And when the Sabbath commandment, it says nothing in the commandment about um, that thou art prescribed to attend church. So they're asking, what about Leviticus 23.3? And Leviticus 23.3 says, um, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. It is the Lord's Sabbath, and it must be observed wherever you live. So how do I explain that? Does anybody want to try before I do? How do you explain that? Well, who is, who is this written for here? It's written for the Jewish people, the, the, the nation of Israel, in Leviticus. And what was the setting? What's the context? They just come out of slavery. They just come out of slavery. And how is their living arrangement? They're living in a large, massive camp. And what is God trying to establish? Remember the big theme. Big theme, Genesis 3.15. God is working out the coming Messiah. This people are the people through whom Messiah is going to come. What does he want to establish? What's his goal for this people? He wants group cohesion, group identity, and he wants to establish um, a system of integration and cohesion and morale where they will stick together and be insulated from all of the other pagan tribes and organizations around that are going to attack them and try to undermine them and destroy them. And even with all these regulations and things that he gave them, and by the way, what I'm describing for you is exactly how every military in the world operates. Military wants to create a unit of cohesion that can be effective to resist outside assaults and can advance its agenda in the face of an enemy. And what does the military, all militaries do? They dress them alike. They house them in close quarters. They feed them at the same time with the similar food. They march them together in lines. They have them sing their hymns or cadences or their... Um, Air Force, Marine, Army, and Navy song, Anchors Away, My Boy. Okay, and this brings a sense of identity and cohesion. And we form this group identity that we have a band of brotherhood and we have this cohesion and it's us against them. God is forging a people with certain cultural identifiers to build them into a army, if you will, to resist the assaults that he knows is coming. And they came and they came. And they came for the purpose of staying integrated long enough, a remnant could be established for the birth of the Messiah. So that's what I see all. And, and that's why all of those elements in Leviticus are around this. And you see lots of stuff. And what, what the danger is in reading scripture is lifting one text up out of the scripture like this one, bringing it down through the quarters of time, and applying it as a rule that we have to live by. Did I just deny the Sabbath? I did not. <laughs> just want to make that very clear. 
But I, I described what's happening here and why it's happening. And this is much of the rules. And if you read Leviticus as a whole, I promise you there will be tons of things in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that God prescribed in a similar manner that you would not want to apply and will not. In fact, you would refuse to apply, such as in Deuteronomy where he says, uh, talking about assembly. This is about assembly, and we're supposed to assemble on Sabbath. Let's bring Deuteronomy in as well. And Deuteronomy says when you assemble, you should take your tithe money and you should convert it into, excuse me, your tithes, which is going to often be cattle and other things. And if it's too far to bring your grain and cattle, then convert it to money, silver, bring the silver to your assembly, and then buy fermented wine and get intoxicated before the Lord. It's in Deuteronomy. That's what we do. So should we do that at our assemblies on Sabbath? Or should we pick this one to assemble, but not pick the, use the tithe to buy strong drink and rejoice before the Lord and reject that one? It's all about assembly. You have to understand what God was trying to do in, in the culture in which he was living, what culture they were living, and what he was trying to accomplish for this larger goal of bringing the plan of salvation to bear. Could you please explain spiritual intelligence, what it is, elaborate uh, on the use and development of there. So spiritual intelligence, the Bible says spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Spiritual intelligence is not something we, through human effort and human study, can achieve. It is a joint experience between a humble heart and the Holy Spirit enlightening us, embracing, internalizing, accepting, and applying the principles of God to our lives, our understanding, and our viewpoints and then we begin to discern the world in a different light. We can take the same facts, and with spiritual discernment, they're set in a different interpretation and a different meaning. And this is something that can only be achieved through those who have a, a faith relationship with, with God and who experience the Holy Spirit. Not something, but it does develop, just like anything else. The more you spend time with God, the more you apply the truths he's given you. And in fact, I will tell you, one of the ways spiritual discernment and spiritual um, uh, uh, intelligence develops is through application. If the Holy Spirit leads you to a certain truth in your life, certain insight, and you're convicted in your heart, but you're not ready to apply that to your life, new insights are going to be very difficult to assimilate until you apply and assimilate the truth you already know and understand. You kind of stay stuck in your journey. And you have to accept and apply the truth the Lord has given you where you're at. And as you do, then new truth. It'd be no different than trying to learn mathematics. If you don't accept basic math principles first, you will never understand trigonometry or calculus. And that's how the Holy Spirit develops us spiritually as well. Could you please comment on the uppercase text in the paragraph below? And this is a quote out of Patriarchs and Prophets 357. Uh, in, the, in the great day of final award, the dead are to be judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, Re uh, Revelation 20.12. Then by virtue of the atoning blood of Christ, the sins of all the truly penitent, will be blotted out of the books of heaven. Thus the sanctuary will be freed or cleansed from the record of sin. Okay? So this is, this is code language. It's symbolic language. There are no parchment books in heaven made out of sheepskin with you know, ink writing on them that have to be erased with lemon juice. No, that's right, with the blood of Jesus. Okay? No, that's not what's going on. This is symbolic. And if you let the Bible interpret itself, 
in the books of heaven are recorded something. Multiple places. Names. names, that's right. And names in scripture are symbolic of character. character. So Jacob, the deceiver, became Israel, one who with God overcomes. When his character changed, his name changed. And in the heavenly records, there was a change in the record because the record are like medical records. And medical records do not cause what happens in the person. Medical records records what's happening in the person. And the books of heaven are simply an accurate recording, if you will, of the what's happening in the heart and minds of people. And so this is simply saying that the deeds are recorded in the characters and those who have not repented have hardened themselves into sin and selfishness and they will be judged for what they actually are in rebellion against God. And those who have had a repentance, their characters are cleansed from those, those motives and actions that led to those deeds Okay, and it's not just the deed. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. No, it is the character or heart motives that lead to the deeds, and those are blotted out of the records because, blotted out? What's he blotting out? Is he blotting out history? No, he's blotting sin out of people. Sin does not happen in books. Sin happens in hearts and minds. We accept Christ. We get a new heart and right spirit. The old is gone. The new is come. He writes his law in our hearts and minds. And thus the blood, which is the life of Christ, is applied to us. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we become partakers of the divine nature. This is what it's teaching. It's simply a symbolic way of saying that the characters of all who trust Christ are uh, cleansed. And I would encourage you to read our new document on the cleansing of the bride, which I go into this in great detail. And you can read it online or you can get one in our, in our lobby if you're here today or ask if you have a postal address, we'll mail you one, a U.S. postal address. Is it possible for a diagnosed bipolar person to be cured of it? My daughter went off her meds and then, and then was going to a Pentecostal church where she said they performed a healing on her. It did seem to work for a while, but I feel she she still is her she still is her same self. Her anger outbursts and lack of impulse control is still there, or came back. It's most it's al- it's been almost devastating to our family. So, your question has multiple layers that my mind is discerning through. First thing to understand is that bipolar disorder is misdiagnosed seventy percent of the time. On both sides, missed in that people with it don't get diagnosed, and people with something else get labeled bipolar. The first question in regard to your daughter is to ascertain whether, in fact, she truly has bipolar or has something other than bipolar, which often gets labeled as bipolar. And one of the most common things that gets labeled as bipolar, which is not bipolar, is borderline personality disorder. And borderline personality disorder are people who are very unstable, irritable, angry, have mood shifts that often happen multiple times in the same day, take offense at everything. They cause division and, and, and splitting of families. They tend to be very histrionic and hysterical. They over-exaggerate. They can be self-harming and suicidal at one moment and, and euphoric the next moment. Uh, this is borderline stuff. Bipolar stuff, they'll have mood swings too, but their moods tend to stay in their dysphoric or euphoric place for longer periods of time, like months of depression, rather than moments or hours of depression followed by, okay? Um, This is just a very big general overview. So you want to clarify what does she have? 
but bipolar, no. There's nothing I know of that cures bipolar. Nothing. Uh, and, and if it is truly bipolar, classic bipolar will have periods of depression. Can last weeks, months. They can have periods of mania. Can last a week or more. And they can have months and even years of normal mood before the next episode. In fact, it's classic that the first episode happens in the early 20s and that if they get treated and stabilized, it's classic that they can go several years or more before the next episode. And if during that period they went to some healing event, they could be in the normal state of, of euthymia that the, that the clinical course predicts is going to happen and think they've been cured, waiting for the next stressor to come along and cause a relapse. So, no, nothing heals it that I know of. But it, it sounds like there needs to be a good diagnostic assessment. Please unpack, decode the pounds parable in Luke 19, the identity of the citizens, the significance of rewarding, and so forth and so forth. So, the person going off to be crowned king is Jesus going to heaven to be recognized or to be coronated. You read about that in Daniel chapter 7 after his resurrection. The people left behind as stewards were all those who have been called initially the Jewish nation who had three and a half more years before their um, prophetic period expired to accept the commission or not. They did not accept it. They hated him and they rejected him and stoned Stephen. Uh, and thus the, uh, the talents and the resources were taken away from them. Uh, and went on to the gospel commission to the, to the rest of the world. And we still stand in that same position when God gives us talents and abilities. We will either use them and they will be multiplied or we will not and we will lose them. That's the law of exertion. And then, um, and then the, the wicked servants and the slaying of the enemies. This is simply the great white throne judgment. Uh, or it says in Revelation the, the 14, when it talks about the wicked are, are destroyed uh, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, that at the final end of time he reveals his life-giving glory and all who are out of harmony with him will be destroyed. Uh, let's see. It describes, uh, this is a quote out of Acts of Apostles. I'm not going to read it all. It simply describes uh, Herod, who beheaded John, uh, uh, going through great agony and sweating and feeling horror-stricken and overcome with, with, with grief and, and guilt and, and all this kind of stuff. And then it goes on to uh, say that um, he didn't experience any relief and he died in great agony of body uh, under the retributive judgment of God. And then that person asks, does this death foreshadow the final death of the wicked? And the Bible tells us in Romans 1 that God's wrath is letting people go to reap what they have sown. So to the degree that, that Herod is reaping what life is like without God working in your life, and he was suffering under that agony, yes, that's exactly how, what the wicked will do in the end. God sets them free, no longer intervenes to protect them from their choices, and they reap what they've sown. To that degree, then that's true. But he also died the sleep death, not the eternal death. So to that degree, it's something different. Now, please clarify your stance on the seven levels of moral development as, uh, being the human, as being the human and or the Christian process of growth of maturity as distinct from any confusion of it being us working our way to heaven. Some I have talked to think that there is not enough emphasis on the completed work of Christ in your message. So um, the seven levels I'm not going to go through. I'm going to simply say the people who are confused, they're confused because they're mis- misunderstanding the achievements of Christ and the application of Christ. 
of Christ's achievements. What we explain in class today is what Christ achieved in our behalf, he did singly and alone for the human species, uh, and he saved the species human in his work by himself, singly, without any human help or effort. And he faced temptation alone, and he tread the wine press alone, and he was abandoned on the cross alone, uh, and so forth and so on. None of us will have to go through that. And on the cross, I didn't, you asked, did he have an advantage? Okay. On the cross, Christ was abandoned by his father. He did not have the comforting presence of his father. We will never have the martyr, Stephen, when he's being stoned, his face is lighting up like an angel. He is being comforted. You read the story of the great martyrs, how they're singing praises and so forth. Uh, Daniel is not left alone in the lion's den. So we may face persecution, but we will face it empowered and comforted by the Holy Spirit. Christ, uh, as our substitute, had to face that without that comforting presence, had to overcome as the second Adam in the position that Adam put the race in. And so he was abandoned without that comfort. So he had a huge disadvantage there, but he still was victorious. So, um, the, so this idea that I don't emphasize Christ, Christ enough, no, no, that's not true. I don't think so. Um, and the application phase now is what Christ is doing through the Holy Spirit, applying in our lives, and that is a cooperative effort. We have to trust him, that, that covenant relation we talked about in class today, and he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The transforming power comes from him. So the... the and this idea of a completed work, this idea of a completed work actually is contrary to historic Adventism. This, this actually is penal legal talk. The penal legal talk is that sin is a legal problem, and it really stems out of Martin Luther and his idea of wanting to get, get away, uh, get, do away with the idea of purgatory. So he, he made this idea that all sins, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ at the cross and punished at the cross, and, and therefore there's no unpunished sins left to be purged in purgatory. So if you accept him as your savior, uh, then you have uh, justification, legal declaration that you're right with him and nothing can change that moving forward and there's nothing left to do. It's a completed atonement. The Adventist worldview is kind of what I described Uh, in that Jesus completed a perfect atonement at the cross and saved the species human in the single person of the humanity that he took through the cross and took back to heaven as the the first fruit uh, and the second Adam. But that application of his victory still has to be applied into hearts of every believer. And that application would be the sanctuary message or the work of our high priest in heaven directing the agencies of heaven for the application of his victory in the hearts and minds of people. And so the atonement will not be fully complete, which is the at-one-ment, until the people of God are sealed and then at the second coming we're glorified. And so there's, a, there's an application phase. And I would tell you, most of the people who talk about this completed atonement are really talking about a legal adjustment um, to standing uh, uh, without an application to the life of the believer. How do we observe the Sabbath as a holy time according to Isaiah 58 and Mrs. White? Interesting. And Mrs. White. Interesting. So Isaiah 58 says that, uh, that you don't keep the Sabbath unless... Unless you delight, in you delight in it, okay? So I, the, the great question, can parents put pressure on their kids in various ways to make sure that they eat their spinach? Yes. Can they make them delight and enjoy it? <laughs> See, that's the issue. Uh, people can put external authority, pressure, coercive tactics, threats, judgments, all kinds of things to get people to behave certain ways on Sabbath. The more of that you do, the less you delight in it, the more you rebel because it's a violation of the law of liberty. And so 
Uh, you can't set up rules for Sabbath keeping. And this is why the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it and, and you should not work, but it never defines what is actual work. It really doesn't. It leaves that you know, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind in Romans 14. And Paul specifically lists several elements as representative of the types of things that would be included there. It's not an exhaustive list, but one of the things he lists specifically is one esteems one day holy and another esteems another day holy. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Does not do away with the Sabbath, does not diminish the Sabbath. He understands that transformation of heart and mind requires the person to be persuaded and agree. And you can't coerce that into people. So what are the kinds of things, how are we to observe the Sabbath? In a way that you delight in it. How do you delight in it? That's how you do it. It says, uh, Genesis 3.15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What way or how does the Holy Spirit, I guess, my question is the Holy Spirit helping? Yes, yes, yes. So as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, okay, this, and this can go toward intercession. What do you want to understand intercession is? God intercedes in three ways in three places. As soon as that humankind fell into sin, this is the first intercession. The, the natural state of a sin, sinful heart is for them to unite together against God. If God did not intercede here, I will put enmity. Notice, this is God acting. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, the church, okay? By the act of the Holy Spirit, putting in our hearts a conviction of sin, a, a desire for something better, a longing for our eternal home with Jesus. That desire for something better than this world has to offer does not come from the natural sinful heart. It comes from the Holy Spirit. He's putting a desire and a longing for something better. That's the first place he intercedes, and the natural result of what sin would do to us if he wasn't interceding and holding it at bay. Second place he intercedes is in the principalities and powers of darkness. We see it all through Scripture. The angel armies and the hedge of protection and so forth and so on. He's holding back in the book of Job and other places. God is holding back and restraining. The angels of the four corners of the earth holding back the winds of strife. He's interceding with what Satan would do if he had free reign. And the third place he intercedes with what sin naturally does to the human being. By becoming the second Adam, and he, beca- he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The natural result of sin is destruction of the individual and death. Jesus took upon himself the condition and he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Uh, um, 2 Timothy 1.10 and thereby opened a new avenue that we all through faith can participate with. We have a different destination. We have an eternal life destination now where in Adam, we only had an eternal death destination. So we inter- interceded in the course of what sin will naturally do without God interceding to open up a new avenue. So those are the three places, and this is one of them. Can God speak to us through dream- dreams? Can Satan do the same to confuse us and wreak havoc? So uh, this is an interesting question. For, of course God can. That's very straightforward. The Bible makes it very clear. God speaks to us in dreams and so forth. I would encourage you to go to our website, type in um, quantum. I think, I, I think it's under, and you'll find a blog. And, and what I describe there is this. I describe our brain. I describe the, that the, 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 the neural circuits of our brain create a quantum matrix of, of energy resonance that either through the choices we make, and the choices we make change the neural circuitry, which will change the harmonic and the, and the, and the 
um, quantum resonance, bringing us either more in harmony with the kingdom of love and God, which makes us more sensitive to this Holy Spirit and we can experience his presence and his impressions and his leading because we are more in harmony. Or if we meditate or embrace the things of the world, our neural circuits change and become more worldly and make us more in tune with the things of Satan and we're more influenced by the resonant harmonics of the satanic in this world, ultimately to the point that people can actually hear uh, demons uh, like the witch of Endor and so forth. And so, um, yes, God can speak to us through our dreams. Satan cannot unless we have continued down paths that put us so in harmony with him that we uh, allow ourselves to resonate, so to speak, on his frequencies. Um, And another way, though, would be relating to dreams themselves. Most dreams, almost all dreams, are not divine or satanic in in origin. Dreams are almost always your own mind, an emotional world trying to process deep emotional content or simply replaying stuff that you've filled your brain with with the day. So I remember many years ago when the first Nintendo came out, which was way back in 1990, I got one. And I remember one weekend in my residency, I had a a game that I played for like 36 hours straight. And then I went to bed, and I closed my eyes, and all I could see processing was that game over. I got up the next day, packed that thing up, and got rid of it. Because <laughs> I, I just was over and over again, because I just put that, and my brain just kept playing it over, and I could not turn it off, uh, because I had done that for so long. Uh, people who watch certain movies at night, they'll, they'll dream about those movies. So that can be part of it. But most of the dreams, and I tell people this, they function like the game Pictionary. Have you ever read, uh, played the game Pictionary? And in the game Pictionary, you have a word, and then you have a marker. And you're not allowed to put words. You have to draw in images to get people to say the word, okay? We do not dream in text. We dream in images. And while you're dreaming, you will dream pictures that represent things. It's almost never what you're dreaming. So if you had the word tranquility, what would you draw? And I've asked people this. Some people draw a beach. Some people draw a, a still, calm lake, okay? These types of things, okay? It's not about water. It's not about sunshine. It's not about a beach. It's not about a lake. It's about tranquility. These things symbolize that, and that's how dreams are. Dreams are symbolic of some other theme. So you want to look at the theme, not the actual imagery that you're dreaming about to actually understand what's going on in your dreams. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for the way you have uh, blessed us with your truth for what Jesus has accomplished for us. And as we start this new year, we really dedicate our lives, our ministry, ourselves to you. And we ask that over this next coming year that we can fulfill the purpose you would have for us and that we will be sensitive to where you're leading and be loyal and faithful to you as you are always loyal and faithful to us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.